Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast here at Triple R on the unceded stolen lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to elders past and present and extend that to any First Nations people that are tuning in this afternoon. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today... I'll be joined by the programmer of the Australian International Documentary Conference, Kim Munro. We'll be chatting about what's on this year and what is happening in the world of narrative non-fiction. And we'll also be talking a little bit about audio documentary within that. And later on in the show, I'll be playing a piece from All the Best. If you're not familiar with it, All the Best is a show where emerging Australian storytellers learn how to make audio stories. It is a weekly podcast and community radio show. It's produced at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with Sid Media and Triple R here in Nam. And today we're going to be hearing a piece that is all about language and justice. I hope you can stay with me. The Australian International Documentary Conference is Australia's premier event for documentary and factual content servicing the screen and digital media industries. This event is taking place online this year and joining to speak about it is conference programmer Kim Munro. Kim, welcome to Triple R. Thank you, Bear. Thank you for having me on. Great to be here. Such a pleasure. Uh, Kim, to begin, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with the documentary form? Well, I um, am a documentary maker. I'm also an academic. I teach at RMIT and uh, I did a PhD in documentary. So, and I, yeah, so all all things documentary in my life. And I'm also, I've been the conference programmer at AIDC for two years now. So quite the expert on documentary. (laughs) What got you first uh, excited about the form? Um, uh, my background is actually in, in photography and I just um, I became more interested in the, the moving image and telling stories and I guess the, you know, the ability to reach people in different ways and have more um, yeah, engagement um, through uh, film documentary. So I, I studied that about 13 years ago and then I've just sort of dabbled in, in lots of different areas in documentary since. Mm. And Kim, as the programmer of the festival, I believe you work with um, some producers and also an advisory committee. Can you explain a little bit about, um, I suppose, how that works and how you all collaborate together to come up with the festival program? Yeah, so it's a really exciting and collaborative process. We have an advisory committee that's made up with people from the ABC and SBS and as well as independent documentary makers and people from Screen Australia and... Um, producers and so uh, we meet with them regularly or a, a couple of times we have meeting and get, get ideas uh, for the program and apart from that sort of researching and then reaching out to a lot of people in the industry and that, so that's um, it could be audio documentary or, or film or television um, and also sort of emerging media and we've got some great um, sessions planned for Sunday. We've got uh, one of those is a pitch where it's documentary 
creatives with um, independent games developers and they come together and and sort of work work up a documentary game pitch. So there's lots of exciting events and um, there's lots of people involved in this program. And I think there's being... Online this year, we've been able to have all these guests that would usually find it really difficult to come out to Australia because they're in, in Europe or in the US. So that's, that's been a real um, bonus of um, the virtual world. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting to have um, so many international uh, producers, but also local producers on the lineup. I'd love to know a little bit more about that, I suppose, shift that's had to happen this year. The, the, fest, the Sorry, the conference is going uh, online, as is the way uh, and, and the world that we're living in. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, shifting to online and kind of what had to change in the thinking of how you put together this conference? Yeah, I think when um, when I sort of came on again, Last year in July, we were planning for a, a sort of a, a dual, um, I guess, sort of, yeah, dual sort of mode of delivery. So we'd have a, a sort of an in-person event as well as online. But then <laughs> then we pretty much went back into lockdown and realised that we, you know, that was not very feasible. So we just took the virtual track. And so um, and then it's like, how do you create a, a you know, a range of experiences and sessions that are engaging and interactive and um, bringing in really exciting speakers. Like um, we have Kirsten Johnson, who's just directed um, Dick Johnson is Dead, which is an amazing film, and David France, um, Welcome to Chechnya, and Alex Gibney. So, um, yeah, I think once we, we decided it was going to be all virtual, then we all sort of could get on board with that without really worrying about um, you know, what would happen if we were in lockdown. Even though we did go into lockdown recently and then we're all preparing to potentially run the conference from our bedrooms. But uh, luckily um, that hasn't sort of continued and we're back at ACME and we're working closely with the ACME AV team and they've been really great and supportive and as people probably know, they've just reopened so there's a lot of um, energy around being there. So it's great. And then we do get to have the... Um, the final awards presentation and closing night um, party, which is also being held in all the other sort of cities of Australia, like satellite versions and Broome. So um, that's a really great thing to have at the end that we all can actually come together, even though we're in our sort of individual cities. Mm, I love seeing that. I think it's a really interesting way of bringing to bringing people together whilst also being have to, you know being covid safe and being apart. So can you just explain that a little bit more so you're having um, parties in each of the kind of capital cities and will there be some connection between those? Yeah, so the awards um, ceremony is um, it's being presented in the Acme Cinema by Lawrence Lung. And um, then that's going to be live streamed to Sydney and Perth and Hobart and Broome and Adelaide and Darwin and Brisbane. Um, so people will be gathered there in the space and celebrating the winners of um, this is the first year that we've done these awards. Um, and then after that, in each of those those hubs, there'll be a, a party with um, with people celebrating and, and being together. So it's sort of a mix of sort of the, the live stream and also the, the in-person. Mm. 
that's exciting that you you know we're at a stage where you can have both you can have the online but you can also have the in-person um you know I think it just shows great resilience being able to kind of bounce back after that snap lockdown and yeah congratulations to you and the team for being able to do that um, I'd love to talk a little bit more about um, the conference itself. You know, it focuses on content, craft, technology, and also the future directions of the form of documentary. I'm interested in terms of kind of technical, technological advances in documentary making. What are you kind of seeing happening at the moment? Um, well, I think, um, I mean, COVID's been really interesting. People have adapted in different ways in terms of the filmmaking process, or um, I think, you know, there's, um, you know, more people are exploring on, you know, sort of virtual world creation or sort of using um, games engines to to build worlds as well in terms of making documentary. Um, I've also experienced a lot of really interesting live virtual performances that have been happening at other festivals around the world, um, documentary ones, or as just... um, just at Sundance recently, I mean, they had this. They built a whole virtual world where you could actually go in and and put your head on a um, avatar and then sort of walk around this space, like a bar, and 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 talk to people like that. So that was really interesting. Um, and as I mentioned before, we have the the, the games pitch, and we have a um, a really exciting digital pioneer of documentary um, called Kat Zizek, who's speaking on the Sunday, and. Um, yeah, so I think people are exploring documentary, you know, they're sort of not just the traditional ways, but just really, you know, using te- technology in different ways. Like, um, you know, David France, one of our guests, will be talking about his recent film, Welcome to Chechnya, where he uses deep fake technology to disguise the um, and protect the identity of the, the participants who are um, gay activists in, in Chechnya and Russia. So I think, you know, there's some really positive uses of technology that we're seeing um, and that can really change, you know, how documentary moves forward in the future, which is really wonderful. Mm, that's so interesting. I love the ways that people are kind of adapting and shifting to the changing ways that people are kind of consuming content. I, I, I'd also like to know, I suppose, with the, you know, the prevalence of social media and online platforms, it's perhaps never felt so relevant given the kind of year we've had um, and just the ways in which we are connecting with, uh, you know, online content. Can you tell me a little bit about, I suppose, how the ways that we engage online and, and through social media have perhaps, are perhaps changing the ways in which we relate to and engage with documentaries? Um, oh, wait, okay. I just want to break down that question because I felt like there was quite a lot there. Um, so I think, um, I think in terms of the distribution possibilities, like one of our panels that we've, we've got is around the potential for um, TikTok and, and other platforms, what people can actually do with that in terms of content creation and, and just, um, you know, like creating creating narratives in different ways and being able to open up to different and more diverse that aren't part of the traditional structure of filmmaking and funding. Like how do people, you know, get access through other means? And, you know, I think this is happening a lot in the you know, in the narrative space with a lot of funding as well, people being able to to get into content creation and um, telling stories and kind of bypassing or or finding different ways around the traditional funding system. So I think that's really great and this gives a lot more opportunity for people to enter into 
um, into that documentary space. Mm, absolutely. It kind of de- democratises the landscape, I suppose, a little bit. Kim, something that we talk a lot about on this show is audio documentary. It's obviously had a huge rise in popularity, you know, in the last decade or so since big podcasts like Serial and This American Life, etc. Um, I know that you've had a few sessions over the last couple of years kind of looking at audio documentary, uh, the form, and, you know, this year you have the creators of Radiotopia's Ear Hustle, which is very exciting. I'm interested as a programmer, how has audio documentary kind of been factored into the conference programming this year and also, I suppose, over the last few years? Yeah, I think, um, well, this year we're really lucky to have the Ear Hustle join us because um, because of the virtual nature and we can get, you know, the like two of the, the co-hosts and co-founders, Nigel Poor and Erlon Woods, as well as um, Julie Shapiro, who is the producer. Um, so that is really great to have them um, as really sort of um, pioneer podcasters in this, you know, what they're doing and creating this sort of um, community um, storytelling. Um, last year we had another session. It was a little bit more about sound design and, and um, talking about uh, podcasts as well as in documentaries. So I think we're always looking for ways of how the, um, you know, the, the intersections between podcasting and documentary and, and where the crossovers are, and I think um, there's been some interesting sessions. So I think, yeah, but I think this year um, being able to get the Ear Hustle team has been a real coup, and um, I'm not sure. I think, I mean, I think they have quite a following in Australia, but hopefully this will just give more exposure to the amazing work that they've been doing. Absolutely. It's such a exciting get. They do incredible work, and I think it's, you know, really paved the way for, you know, podcasts in Australia that are working with people that are incarcerated. Um, There was the Great Bird's Eye View podcast that came out last year. Um, You know, I'd I'd love to kind of expand on that. You you spoke about how looking into the kind of crossover between documentary and podcasts, I think it's interesting the more people that are creating kind of audio documentary podcasts that are looking into social change. I'm interested in, I suppose, what audio documentarians can learn from screen-based producers in terms of um, impact producing. I know that you do have a panel that is looking at impact producing. What do you think, I suppose, audio documentarians can learn from screen-based impact producers? Um, Well, I think, yeah, I think there's, I mean, from what I know about um, impact producing, it's it's a whole kind of next level of producing that requires a really um, comprehensive and well-thought-through strategy. And I know that the impact producers come on really early and get involved and really um, map map out what they're doing and what they want to um, achieve. But I think it's also something that continues uh, long after the production of the film. So I think, I mean, it, it, to be honest, it's not a world that I know heaps about, but I think it's really fascinating and there's, it's a really particular skill set. And I think... Um, just building that team in the in the pre-production and getting people on board and really thinking about where they want to go with the the project, um, I think is a re- something really interesting that people could can learn from impact producing. Mm, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's something that's a, it's a conversation that I've definitely found um, I've been having in the podcasting community and I really hope that it is something that uh, can be, I suppose, taken on board from kind of screen-based media. I think it is a really important part. Um, yeah, and I really hope to see that in the future. Um, Kim, you know, there's a session that's focused on, I suppose, how the documentary industry can make itself more environmentally friendly to make itself more sustainable. Can you chat to me a little bit about that and, and I suppose how you see the documentary industry sitting where you see it sitting at the moment in terms of um, environmental sustainability yeah I think this is um, a really great session um, it's called setting the scene for a greener screen which is also a really <laughs> wonderful name and that has um, a, a really high profile impact producer Anna Kaplan who worked on 2040 and um, as well as some other films so they've been looking at um, what people are doing um, you know especially in Britain there's been a lot of innovations and developments and uh, building strategies and tools for people to really track what they're, they're doing and how sustainable their um, productions are. And I know also it's happening a lot in um, reality or, or sort of factual television, factual entertainment. There's a lot more strategies. But I think people really think about documentaries being fairly low impact. But I, I think um, this session is giving some um, insight into some case studies that they have. And I know that they've put together um, a document that um, helps people really sort of think about what they're doing and gives them some clear ideas and, and um, ways to measure the, the impact that they're having. So I think that's a really exciting um, direction that documentary is going. I think the COVID era or this 2020 has really made people think about how much they actually need to be getting on planes and travelling to you know other countries to do their production and maybe even employing local crews a bit more to um, tell those stories, which I think you know is really great in so many ways because you're, you're sort of taking that sort of um, top-down focus away and you're kind of giving more opportunity for local um, production crews to you know collect that material and and do that filming. So it's sort of sustainable. Um, as well as ethical and um, so I think there's yeah that's sort of working in multiple directions there. Mm, that's exciting I feel like the last year's given us a lot to uh, reimagine and it's exciting that I suppose we're thinking about it in in that kind of uh, through the environmental lens. Um, Kim thank you so much for your time it's been great chatting to you. Thank you so much. That was Kim Munro there the programmer of the Australian International Documentary Conference. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. This next story comes from All the Best. It is a show where emerging Australian audio storytellers learn how to make stories. It is both a weekly podcast and a community radio show that's produced uh, in collaboration with FBI, CNN, and Triple R. And the story that we're about to hear comes from one of their latest episodes called Lexicon, a content warning here for discrimination against First Nations people in the criminal justice system and for the mention of suicide. Please know that you can always call Beyond Blue for free at any time on 1300 224 636. What does justice even mean if no one speaks your language? 
There are over 17 Aboriginal languages spoken in and around Mbwata in Alice Springs, but there's only been an Aboriginal interpreter service since the year 2000. MJ Bakewell looks to the past and one Yunka Chachara man's legacy to see how far we've come to ensure Aboriginal language speakers have the right to understand and to be understood. Back in 2015, I'd just arrived in Alice Springs and I was standing in front of the courthouse. I was with my supervisor, a lawyer with Aboriginal Legal Aid, and he turned to me and he said, this is the frontier, the frontier of justice. And I thought, was he joking? I mean, what did I know? I was 25, it was my first law internship, and I had never been to court before. I followed the duty lawyers around like a shadow. They ran around on their phone, their arms full of manila folders. There were clients there too, all Aboriginal people, and mostly they were just sitting and waiting. I watched the lawyers ask complex questions in English. I watched the clients nod back in agreement. Sometimes I thought that maybe they needed an interpreter, because for some, English might be their second, third or even fourth language. But they said that they didn't, and the lawyers pushed on. Maybe by frontier of justice, my supervisor had meant, we're still working this out. Because there was something about the difference in language skills between the lawyers and clients that was kind of uncomfortable. Later, I asked some lawyers how much they thought the clients understood, and their answers never really satisfied me. They just said, this is how it is. Yeah, that's the sort of reaction I get to. This is David Moore. He's a linguist and an interpreter. He's a white fellow. I tried to reach out to the Aboriginal Interpreter Service, but they government-run and nobody got back to me, except for one person who sent me on to David. It's now 2020 and neither of us are satisfied by how it is. What I've seen is people pleading guilty when they don't need to plead guilty and assuming almost fatalistically that they're going to jail. David told me about one time he was booked for an interpreting job, but the person hearing the case didn't think that interpreter was needed. I was interpreting on a like a video link, and he said something like, oh, this man's been in Alcuda for the last 20 years, hasn't he? English is spoken there, he should know English, and we don't need an interpreter. So I'll say goodbye now, Mr Interpreter, and just switches off the link. David explains that decisions in court can get made as though the accused person isn't even in the room. Decisions that are about them. He says this attitude could be found in Northern Territory courts as far back as the 1950s. Justice Crewalt made a statement to the effect that They didn't understand what was going on, but it wouldn't matter whether they were there or not. That's not justice. Maybe it's sadly not that surprising that this discriminatory treatment of Aboriginal people in the courts has been going on for a long time. But I still wanted to know more. And the more that I researched, a lot of Central Australian roads just kept leading me back to this one man, Yami Lester. Through the 70s and 80s, Yami was pioneering a lot of language work at the Institute for Aboriginal Development, or IAD, in Alice Springs. This is an archival recording of him interpreting for a council meeting at Jay Creek. Yes. He's talking about a failure to deliver housing. He promised us for 10 houses. Are they built? They answered. No. They forgot about it. In the 70s, Yami was one of the few interpreters at a time when there was no Aboriginal interpreter service or Aboriginal legal aid. And that's even though there were around 17 different Aboriginal languages around Alice Springs. In court, Yami saw things like people not understanding actually why they were in trouble. 
He saw people agree to something they didn't do just to try to get out of there. He wrote, and I'm quoting here, I've seen old men shaking with fear. When I ask them, what's the matter? They say, I don't know what's going on. In short, people didn't understand court, and court didn't understand them. Yami's thinking there needed to be an Aboriginal interpreter service. To understand how Yami first got interested in interpreting, we need to go back to the 50s, to his homeland, Wallatinna, in the far, far north of South Australia, on Yunkajara country. We're here at Wallatinna on Dad's country. My name's Karina Lester. I'm Yami Lester's youngest daughter. I speak Yangujara language and Bijanjara because my grandmother was a Bijanjara woman and English as my second or third language. In 1953, the British were doing nuclear testing at a place called Emu Junction and the fallout rolled over Wallatina. Yami was just a kid. You know, the black mist rolling and the ground shaking, you know, you kind of think, wow. Yami lost sight in one eye from the fallout. In 1957, he got sent to Adelaide to have his other eye removed. Yami couldn't understand the doctors. In his autobiography, he remembers a man came and took him to a place called Colebrook. It was basically a place for Aboriginal kids to assimilate. And Yami met his new roommate, a young fellow called Georgie, who spoke Yankadara. Finally, Yami could ask what was happening. Georgie explained that Yami wasn't going home, that he wouldn't be able to see again. Eight years later, when Yami finally got to see his family, he couldn't speak to them. It took him four days for his language to come back. And afterwards, he quotes, I'm never going to let the language go away. Back in Adelaide, Yami started using his language. He started interpreting for the courts or the hospital when Yankundara people needed help. He'd listened to activist Charles Perkins on the radio, and it got him thinking about Aboriginal rights. In 1970... Yami was invited up to Alice Springs for an interpreting job at the Institute for Aboriginal Development. Yami says, what was in my mind was helping people. I knew what it's like when you can't communicate. They said, yes, we told him that one. He asked, who? They said... There was a real sense of, yeah, we can change things. Russell Goldflam worked with Yami Lester. I mean, he was the pioneer of this. I was, uh, he was my boss and I was acting as his agent in this to a very large extent. He was the one who inspired me and taught me. Yami seemed like he had a big influence on Russell. He's a white fella and he joined Yami's team in 1981, working on a new interpreter training program. It was the first of its kind in the Northern Territory. And back then he saw in the courts what I saw decades later. It was obvious that there were people going to court and being found guilty of things and being sentenced who had no idea what was going on. It was also obvious that there was an opportunity to to change that. Russell says he got involved right as the wave of land rights and self-determination was cresting in Alice Springs. When I came here, I knew that I was in the vanguard of a group of progressive, idealistic people who were going to fix racism within a few years. I knew. I mean, I was 25, so forgive me. It turned out that things were much worse than we could possibly understand. The IAD got some funds in 1983 to set up an interpreter service, enough to buy a sedan and pay a coordinator, Russell says. 
That coordinator was Veronica Dobson, a senior Eastern Orinda woman. I never ever expected to be working on language. Growing up at a Catholic mission in Santa Teresa, she hadn't been allowed to speak her language. We used to play marbles and stake a, a girl on the end of the building and tell them to whistle when they saw a nun coming <laughs> so we could stop, you know, talking Arundel and talk this funny English. In the early 80s, Veronica was working as a cleaner at the courthouse and the IAD. A chance encounter with a linguist set her on another path. I had a mop and bucket in my hand <laughs> and he asked me what language I spoke. I said Eastern Arundel and we just got together and away it went. But for the service, money was a real issue. It wasn't funded to pay its interpreters and that wasn't great for keeping them around. Between 1979 and 1999, there were 12 separate reports recommending the Northern Territory government provide an interpreter service, but the government just didn't want to hear it. Russell still remembers how the chief minister responded. He said, we've got schools, people can go to school, they're supposed to go to school, they have to go to school. Giving an interpreter to people who've been given the opportunity to go to school is like giving a wheelchair to a person who says he can't walk. And that's what the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory said in Parliament on this issue. Well, we normally say, you know, (laughs) every time we do something, we get a kick in the guts. Again, Veronica Dobson. My kids say to me, why do you keep doing it? (laughs) The love of the language. And then in 2000, the Chief Minister agreed to fund a service. He signed an agreement which saw millions of dollars being committed. Because he changed his mind, not at all. In February that year, a 15-year-old boy from Groot Island had hung himself in his cell. It came out that he apparently didn't understand why he was there. So we got our interpreter service funding, but for all the wrong reasons. Over a dead body, literally. The government's interpreter service took over from IAD and was still going back when I was in court in 2015. Since then, I've worked in legal education in the Central Desert. I've seen people at Bush Court ask their family, what is this piece of paper, after being given new court dates on a paper slip. I've worked with people who don't understand why police gave them a restraining order. And the other day a colleague told me about a police officer who literally didn't know how to access the interpreter service. So maybe this is how it is? But does it have to be? Yami Lester passed in 2017. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said after his death that Yami was one of the most significant Aboriginal leaders our country has known. I'm, I'm proud to be his youngest daughter and be able to keep some of his legacy alive and, and ongoing. Karina Lester, Yami's daughter, became an interpreter too. There's such a huge gap of interpreters. I don't know where we're not getting it right because this is stuff that Dad had done in the 70s and 80s. And I had a meeting talking to the state government about what are you doing about interpreters and translators and I'm talking it up the same way as Dad was. (laughs) Our generation, I think my generation, is about, you know, really making sure that it's a human right 
to have an interpreter. And so important because language is so much bigger than just a way of communication. It's about culture and about land and about your ancestral stories or Yangunyara mob, you know, use the term wabar, but it just unlocks all of that through your knowledge of, of your language and its identity. That was Never Gonna Let the Language Go. It was produced by MJ Bakewell with supervising production from Belinda Lopez. It was also originally produced for the 2020 Community Broadcasting Association of Australia's National Features and Documentary Series. You can also check out All the Best wherever you get your podcasts from or you can head over to their website. They are currently accepting pitches, so do check it out if you do want to find out more. I want to say a big thanks to Kim Munro, for joining me this afternoon to chat all about the Australian International Documentary Conference. If you do want to find out more information, you can head to their website at aidc.com.au. It's largely taking place online this year, as is the way of the world. I'll be back with you. Until then, keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website.